You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, March 9th, 2006. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. With me today, as always, is Perry DeAngelis. Yes, I'm here. Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone. And Bob Novella. Good evening. Well, for, for those of you out here who maybe have not listened to our podcast before, just a little bit about the Skeptic's Guide. Uh, we are a discussion, a weekly podcast that we discuss uh, science items, skeptical items, paranormal, pseudoscience, controversial claims, the kinds of news items that get missed by the mainstream media, and we discuss everything from a very hard-nosed scientific point of view. We are both riveting and entertaining. Absolutely. And we have fun doing it. Yes. <laughs> Coming on our show in just a little bit is Rebecca Watson. Rebecca is the founder of the Skeptics organization. We'll be talking to her in just a moment. But first, uh, we'll start, as usual, with some, some news items, things that, that have caught our attention over the last week. The, the British National Health Service recently decided to pay for magnet therapy to help prevent chronic ulcers. Uh, now, the England, Britain, um, as you may or may not know, has a national health service. They have socialized medicine, although they, what they have is a two-tiered health system. There's a private health system for people who have money, and there's a national health service for everybody else. Uh, so this is basically a government-run health care system. And they decide from the top down at a, at a bureaucratic level what they're going to pay for and what they're not going to pay for. And they decide, this is the first time they're deciding to pay for magnet therapy for anything, uh, which was, um, you know, quite a bit of news. It, uh, of course, the alternative medicine proponents are hailing this as a victory. <laughs> it's uh, a bunch of bloody rot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, so, you know, the, the magnet therapy, this is something that's been around for a long time, for, for centuries, really, since since magnetism was was first discovered. Um, I think you know quack uses for magnetic uh, fields goes back probably to Mesmer, the guy who coined the term animal magnetism, and it's it recently had a lot of um, exposure. There have been a lot of companies selling either magnetic bracelets or braces or wraps for both you know, sports performance and healing wounds and basically any health claim that you could possibly imagine. Unfortunately, there is absolutely no science to support any specific health claim of for magnet therapy. Of course not. How could the upper echelons of the English healthcare system support this? It's, it's really disappointing. Unfortunately, when you have sort of this top-down, bureaucratic-run healthcare system, you, decisions are made very politically. Um, and just like in this country, um, you know, Medicare, Medicaid will cover certain things that I, I consider to be complete quackery or for which I, the scientific evidence is, is significantly lacking, uh, like acupuncture for, for lots of in, um, indications, for example. So it's not, you know, it's not surprising, although it is disappointing. The, the claims behind magnet therapy are based upon, usually based upon the notion that the magnetic fields increase blood flow to the tissue. 
Uh, and many of the defenders, and in fact, in the, the recent articles talking about this decision, that some of the supporters claim make that specific claim that um, that the the magnetic fields increase blood flow. Here's a, a woman by the name of Kleshna, who is a maker of magnet jewelry, so she has no. Um, hidden agenda whatsoever. She's a magnetician. <laughs> she claimed in her press release that magnets created a a whirlpool effect to the iron in our blood to get it pumping round much faster than usual. <laughs> now, I, I believe the iron in your blood is non-ferrous. That's right. That's the that's, that's, that's just what I was going to say. The big problem with that is that yeah, the the iron in blood is non-ferromagnetic. It does not respond to a magnet. So any and any hand-waving explanation that involves the magnetic fields affecting the iron in the blood is a priori wrong just on the basis of physics, let alone any you know, biological evidence. Um, physics, supporters have physics. They, they've put forward all kinds of hypotheses, every single one of which has been proven not to be the case. It does not change neuronal function. Uh, it doesn't make the cells act any differently. One supporter made the argument that he said, if anyone who doubts that magnets have effect have an effect on the body, just put a magnet up to the left side of your brain, and and your right arm will twitch because you know, oh, your left wow. side of your brain affects the right side of your body. Uh-huh. And <laughs> yeah, that is simply absurd. Unless, of course, you're using a ridiculously powerful magnet, not the kind of thing that you're going to be able to hold up to the left side of your brain. Uh, like now, millions of Gauss. Or right. Well, the, or uh, billions. The, um, the, the, the two problems with that is, one, it is true that our nervous system is electrical, and you know magnetic fields can induce electrical currents just like electrical currents can induce magnetic fields. In fact, our, our brains produce a magnetic field, and... And uh, there are a number, only a handful, though, of of instruments called magnetoencephalograms that can measure the very faint magnetic fields that our our nerve neuronal processes produce. And if you did produce a strong enough magnetic field, you could induce electrical currents in the brain. You can have magnetic induction of uh, of uh, conduction, you know, through through nerves and through uh, through the brain. But that that's just because our brains are electrical. That says absolutely nothing about the effects of magnetic fields on any other tissue in the body, and certainly says absolutely nothing about the any alleged healing effects of magnets. And it's a good example of just the slovenly thinking of uh, a lot of alternative medicine proponents, and specifically proponents of magnetic therapy, that they would use that as an example. Yeah, but if they said that they, if they claim that they could affect, you know, your thinking processes or or something with a with a suitable magnet. I mean, that would be more plausible than saying, you know, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna heal your bones faster uh, using right. these magnets, right? I mean, it's right. Uh, and and you know, the regardless of any alleged mechanism of action, you know, the, more importantly is just what is the evidence say? If we're gonna just evaluate this based upon what I feel is the the narrow but you know legitimate within itself precepts of evidence-based medicine. What does the evidence say for its effectiveness? And the fact is there is no consistent pattern of, effect- of effectiveness. There are some small pilot studies which may have shown an effect, but the later, more definitive trials have all been essentially negative. So there is no proven of clinical effect of, of magnetic therapy. Uh, at the, the best you could say, if you're being generous, is that the jury is still out. Uh, but there certainly is no proven benefit. 
So it is just pure poppycock. It's, it's just another example of the barbarians at the gates of uh, of a pseudoscience working its way basically through political machinations uh, into legitimate medicine. How strong are the magnets in an MRI? Yeah, I mean that's that that point comes up too. I mean people talk about these weak magnetic fields when you know the the magnets in an MRI scan are the, your your average clinically used MRI has a two tesla uh, magnetic field. There are four and eight tesla magnets that are used for research and and uh, the 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 clinical magnets for MRIs are going to be getting stronger and stronger um, because you could you could basically see tissue better with them. So here you have you know people. Um, and sometimes even specifically people's heads, their brains, inside re- these ridiculously powerful magnetic fields um, for 45 minutes for an hour. And there's no biological effect that's been observed from this. You know, people don't even have, they don't have weird neurological effects, hallucinations or visual illusions or alterations in their thoughts. Or There's, there's no effect to these extremely powerful magnetic fields. The refrigerator magnets that fill most of these catalogs of, of magnetic devices uh, have, you know, magnetic fields which are, you know, a millionth of the, of the strength of the, uh, the magnet or less of the magnets in an MRI scan. But not only that, the, um, the types of magnets that are in many of these devices are... Um, are re- they are quote-unquote refrigerator magic types, which means that they're strips of magnets with alternating poles. So the poles are going in different directions. And the reason why they do that is because that creates, with a, with a, a relatively weaker re- mag, you know, series of magnets, you get a very strong magnetic field, you know, strong for a refrigerator magnet. We're still not anywhere near what you get with an MRI scan. But you get a stronger magnetic field, but with a much shorter distance. So you may have noticed that magnets stick really well to the refrigerator, but you only have to peel them very slightly off the refrigerator, and there's no attraction at all. The magnetic field is very shallow. Now, put wrap that magnet in, in a bandage and wrap it around your elbow, and the magnetic field is is probably not getting through the bandage let alone through your skin, let alone down to the tissue. Most of the magnets that are being sold are not producing a significant magnetic field at the tissue level. So you're not even getting the magnetic field, whether or not a magnetic field has any health effects whatsoever. Pure, place, pure placebo. If I recall, we had, we had a magnetician come in once to give us a demonstration for That's those right. of us in the New England Skeptical Society. At one of our lectures, we allowed a, 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 a hawker of magnetic quack devices uh, Make his make his case, and we did little tests of them while while we had him there. It was it was pure nonsense. I mean, one of the one of the things he did, he had these like two magnetic balls, and he would shake them up. He did his little ritual, like shaking them ten times, and then uh, he would hold them next to your back, and then he would have um, the person, the the subject, turn around at the waist and measure like how far they could turn around, then he would hold the magnets next to your back and you should be able to turn around an extra 10 or 15 degrees and that was supposed to show something. But these demonstrations are all designed to be deceptive, you know, to, to make you see, make it seem as if there is an effect when there really isn't. And of course, if you do them in a blinded fashion, you would get the same effect. You know, people, you know, you only have to try a little bit harder to just to be able to turn at the waist a few degrees more than you did... Uh, Without the magnets, he was also the guy who demonstrated the um, the amazing 
Oh, the plate that the plate that, that would the, the plate that would defrost meat without having to plug it in or anything. Yeah, right. It's basically <laughs> it's an aluminum plate, you know, the, it w- and it was thicker. They always said, yeah, the meat will defrost faster if you leave it on the countertop. Yeah, that's because countertops don't conduct heat, and and metal plates do. It's just basic physics. Shh, you ruined it, Steve. You ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> I ruined the bit. I think you ruined his day, actually, frankly, when he came in and tried to uh, <laughs> to show us his uh, incredible devices. He was a true believer. He thought he was going to convince oh, yeah. us. Um, the IRS put out a warning this week about tax refund scams. Always another scam in the works, and uh, you have to be on the lookout. And it's tax season. You guys filed your taxes yet? Yes, I have. Good no. for you. I have some little people that do that for me. <laughs> do you actually pay tax? Well, that's a whole other story. Excuse me. The uh, both the IRS and you know the Connecticut Department of Revenue Services have put out warnings. Basically, the, the either the IRS or your your state um, Department of Revenue, they never will send you an email asking you for personal or identifying information. They'll never ask you for your social security number, for bank account numbers. Um, they will never send you an unsolicited email asking you for information. Uh, so if you get an email, it's a scam. Don't First of all, never click a link, even if it, just to see what it does or where it goes, because just the links themselves can be malicious. And never respond to them. Don't respond to them to tell them, to take you off a list or to not to send you emails anymore, just just delete it. Or better yet, forward it to the FTC. You could forward it to the FTC.gov, and and they will register it as um, you know a, a fraudulent email. If you have to contact the IRS, uh, then go directly to their website or call their their number, but don't interact with the email at all. Here, here. Don't even download um, pictures that are part of the that the email. Some email applications will let you will auto download pictures that might be sent to uh, sent with an email, and that just tells people that uh, that you're that you're active if you actually download it. So set it set it so that you you have to download the pictures within an email manually, and that will uh, ensure your um, you right. know, your privacy. Good advice. Now, Evan, you sent me this other item the other day, and I had received this from other people as well. This is this is an internet urban legend that has been running around for uh, for a few years a few years now. This is a plastic scare. Basically, uh, you get a a bulk email, probably from somebody you know, to you know twenty or thirty or forty people in their uh, email directory, and the and it's you know the 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 prose is typically hysterical. Uh, warning you not to um, put plastic in the microwave, that when you put plastic containers in the microwave, it releases dioxins, which are poisonous. You shouldn't put plastic in the refrigerator. You shouldn't put you know, water bottles that are plastic in the refrigerator. I, I hadn't actually heard this until uh, my wife Jennifer had sent, uh, sent me the email and forwarded it on to you guys for right. to talk about tonight. And you know, what typically happens is people get this email, you know, it... Uh, it may look legitimate. They usually will quote some sources. This one quoted the Johns Hopkins University, basically saying scientists, I think it might have even named a person specifically at Johns Hopkins University, discovered this and put out this warning. Uh, some Sometimes they don't mention uh, Hopkins. There are usually a few variations uh, of these of these Internet uh, scam hoax chain letters. 
but people you know meaning well wanting to warn their friends pass them on when you get these emails you really shouldn't pass them along um, you should at least do some preliminary investigation or ask somebody who may know be, before you flood you know your your friends email boxes with with scams now this one when I first got this actually my wife sent it to me too she had got it from somebody at work and it had gone to like everybody at her work and she sent it to me and said, Steve, this looks bogus. Why don't you t- tell me if this is legitimate or not? It literally took me about 40 seconds on Google to find a definitive uh, article debunking this, this email. It didn't take long for me to figure out that it, that it was fake. Um, so, in fact, because Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, was mentioned specifically, they the Johns Hopkins Public Health Newsletter put out an article dispelling this particular urban legend. The link will be on our on our notes page again. And basically spelling out the fact that, you know, that their heating or cooling or whatever freezing plastic does not release any toxins into the whatever is in the container, into the food or water. There's absolutely no risk to this. This is a complete, you know, invented, fabricated out of whole cloth uh, urban legend. And then they had never put out any such uh, evidence or any such warning uh, in any of their publications. So they, they dispelled that particular myth. So if you get this one, hit the delete button. Don't pass it on. It's just an internet hoax. Now, before we go on to our guest, uh, we did have one uh, one of our listeners sent us an email this week. This is from Peter Holt. And Peter writes, I've been enjoying your podcasts, but I wanted to pick you up on something you've said in your in the last couple of editions. You described other primates, such as chimps, as our nearest ancestors, which is incorrect. They are our nearest relatives. Evolution deniers grab onto the incorrect idea that they are our ancestors to try to discredit evolution with lines such as, if we descended from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? I also wanted to share my own theory as to why some people, not necessarily religious fundamentalists, have trouble grasping the concept of evolution. I believe a lot of people simply can't comprehend the time required for evolutionary changes in a complex life form. They can't think in terms of infinitesimally small steps over millions of years. This might explain why evolution deniers can get away with saying ludicrous things like nobody has ever seen a cat turn into a dog in a laboratory or my great-grandfather wasn't a monkey. (laughs) Keep up the good work, Peter. So I I went back and listened to last week's podcast because I had a sense that he was right. We were responding to an email that we had received that we were talking about. Um, the discussion began with uh, quoting from the listener's email who, who asked, how can it be that we have so many defects and our closest DNA ancestors have so little? So the, the, the error was, was started with uh, a, a, one of our listeners' emails, but we did fail to correct it. But I think Bob, in fact, you were a little confused by his use of the words ancestors. I, I kind of figured he was talking about our our relatives, but didn't right. specifically correct his use of the term. And I think I did. I, listening to it again, I think I did perpetuate it once. So, Pete, thanks for the correction. That, of course, is correct. You know, living chimpanzees, living gorillas are not our ancestors. We share a common ancestor. Again, probably about eight million years ago or so with chimpanzees, or or some like five to eight million years ago, maybe up to twelve or so with with apes with gorillas and, and other great apes. Um, but they but living apes are not our ancestors. They are our relatives, our closest living relatives, our evolutionary cousins. So thanks again for the correction. He, he also mentions uh, his hypothesis as to why evolution 
uh, is so easy to deny. Actually, do any of you guys recognize the logical fallacy that he is referring to in that hypothesis? Basically, <laughs> that people um, simply can't comprehend the time required for evolutionary changes in a complex life form. So, what he is talking about is the argument from personal incredulity, uh, which which creationists use quite liberally. Creationists argue, in effect, I can't imagine evolution blind forces producing all of right. the complexity that we see today. Therefore, it's not plausible or it didn't happen. Their argument is basically that the, the, the complexities of the universe should somehow be limited to their personal imaginations or ability to understand things. Well, I mean, th there's one thing, though, that, uh, I mean, humans generally can't conceive of, the, right. of those timescales. I mean, we're just not, we just didn't, you know, evolve to to be able to grasp something more significant than, you know, than maybe, you know, eight decades, nine decades. I mean, I've read an article that, that kind of went into detail about this. I mean, who, I mean, nobody can really wrap their mind around, you know, millions of years. It's just something that's inconceivable. 600 million years, yeah. You, you can't wrap your mind around that. Right, like the size of the universe. You, can't, you just got to kind of, just kind of like go with it, and there's no way you're going to imagine it or, th or, you know, think about it. You just can't do it. Um, so he... He was correct in pointing that out. That definitely is uh, one of the things that creationists do, is sort of play on how difficult it is to imagine the subtle changes in evolution accruing over hundreds of millions of years and resulting in the amount of changes that they do. I don't know why is that that's so hard to believe. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I think, in fact, you know, a lot of creationists have argued to me that you know, they agree in microevolution but not macroevolution, so small changes can occur but not big changes. And the reason why that is fallacious is because, well, if you agree that a small change can occur, um, then right. now just extrapolate that over hundreds of millions of years. Well, right. can, can 10 small changes occur? Can 100? Can 1,000? Can 10,000? And if Look what we've done with yeah, dogs. Look what we've done with <laughs> dogs. I mean, we, we have done that. We have seen it over over the course of, of human civilization, what can be done with dogs. And that's how, you know, how many centuries have we been doing that? Now, now just multiply that times times a thousand. What, what could happen by, you know, natural right. selection? I mean, Come I on. agree. Intellectually, it's not hard to understand how evolution can have created so much change, you know, over the, the time period that it, that it has had to work with. You know, the argument from personal incredulity here is just willful, you know, ignorance, in my opinion. It's just another example of, you know, science knocking humans off of their pedestal. Mm -hmm. I mean, they people don't want to believe that that they're not special, that humans are not special somehow, and it just hits too close to home with the whole, you know, religion and God thing. It's I think those those are um are are some of the primary yeah, reasons right there. Well, it's time to move on to our guest, so let's bring her on now. Okay. Joining us now is Rebecca Watson. Rebecca, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, Rebecca is the founder of the Skeptic Organization. Uh, she is a freelance writer and a skeptical activist. Uh, you can read about her organization at skeptic.org. Uh, among other things, the organization is the publisher of the Skeptic Calendar. Uh, Rebecca, why don't you tell us about the calendar? How did you get started with that? Um, well, actually, the calendar started the whole organization. Um, it was just 12 of us got together, and we wanted to raise some money to 
send some women to the amazing meeting in Las Vegas hosted by the James Randi Educational Foundation and hopefully just to get more women involved in skepticism. And we thought we would sell a few to our friends, but then word spread and it ended up being a really big hit. So we just kind of ran with it and that's how Skeptics started. Um, That's how the online magazine got started and everything. So who would have figured a calendar with semi-nude ladies on it would have been popular? <laughs> we <laughs> had no idea. <laughs> Rebecca, how do I get one of those calendars? Um, we're actually all sold out of the 2006 uh-huh. calendar. Yeah, you should have gotten on it earlier. But we do have calendars coming out in 2007, and we've got a great lineup of people involved. And in fact, we're going to be doing two different calendars one of all women and one of all men. Uh-huh. So that's pretty exciting. Now, Bob is pretty buff. You may want to interview him for this. Hey, we have some pretty calendar. firm flesh at the New England Skeptical Society. Well, you know, if you'd like to apply, go for it. You will be up against some pretty heavy hitters that we already have signed on, though, like um, the bad astronomer Phil Plate is going yeah. to be in it. Um, and, in fact, James Randi already sent in his photo, so he's definitely going to be in it. And let me tell you, it's a good photo. <laughs> so we're very excited. Oh, that'd be awesome! Wow. Um, that sounds great. Yeah, it's a it's a very it's a fun project. And but that and that the the calendar started it, and then that led you into skeptical activism in general, just to, with the skeptic org. And what so what else have you been doing? Well, what we first set up was the online magazine, and that comes out every month on the fifteenth. We've got the March one coming up soon. And that's been really great, and it's gotten some really good feedback. Um, And I also started up a daily blog, uh, which is just me commenting on various happenings of the day. And that's good because it gets people coming back to the site every day. Um, And so it's also been pretty popular. And then coming up, we want to eventually start setting up chapters around the country and around the world where women can get together and uh, discuss certain critical thinking topics or host lectures, things like that. Excellent, excellent. Now, of course, the the interesting thing about this is this is always a topic that comes up in skeptical circles is why are there so few women in skeptical activism? Exactly. Um, I don't think that anyone has the, the definitive answer to that question, but you, since you're involved, what's, what's your opinion? Have you thought much about this? Uh, well, yeah, I have given it a lot of thought, and... I'm really not sure. <laughs> um, I, I think it's I think it's actually a lot of factors, um, and one of the ones that I'm trying to tackle with skeptics is just kind of making it making science in general more available to women and showing them, you know, that it can be fun and interesting to use science in your everyday life. Um, right. I think that's really important. And I think that's important across the board is showing men, too, how science relates to your everyday life and how amazing science is and how much crap is out there that they need to be wary of. I think, yeah, I think part of it's cultural. I mean, women, I think, are generally steered you know, away from, from the hard sciences, just in general. Uh, you know, I mean, you don't see, I don't think there's too many, um, compared to men, uh, you know, women in, in skeptical graduate courses or, I mean, uh, scientific, like physics, well, in recent like months, I've seen uh, ads on television uh, to, about girls staying with math and science um, as they get a little older. And when I when I researched those ads a little bit, I saw that behind them was in fact the uh, the Girl Scouts 
of America. They have a, you know, they have a science is cool website and, uh, you know, people are certainly conscious of it. They're, they're pushing for it. But you know, that, uh, that kind of campaign to get women more involved in science has been going on for, you know, 10, 20 years now. And it's working. The, the number of women in college in general and in the math and science is steadily increasing. And in fact, it's overtaking men. You're yeah, cool. actually, I just heard that on the I think wow. NPR. They were talking about that just the other day, and I thought, That's "Oh, right. wow, <laughs> I might be uh, our, our organization might be out of business." <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but in in twenty years, I mean, if if the if the trends continue, women may really be dominating, you know, higher education and specifically the sciences. Certainly, that they've already tipped over into the majority in the health sciences, which I think is generally has always been a little bit more appealing to, to women for whatever reason. There's, there is one thing, um, an interesting fact is that, a, that even though we have more women who are um, studying math and science, they're still having a lot of trouble keeping them in academia. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of them end up falling out of it and going uh, towards more independent, you know, corporations and whatnot. Um, and so that's smart. kind of an interesting thing. Um, yeah, I, I was just talking to um, one of the skeptics. Uh, I believe it's Ms. August, uh, who just got accepted <laughs> to MIT um, for graduate wow. study. And um, she was telling me how she just doesn't see a lot of women in the in those upper echelons of academia. And so there, there's, there's a big push to figure out why that is. And, of course, you guys know about Larry Summers, the, the president yes. of Harvard, who just yeah. resigned. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of people talking about it. Unfortunately, it's kind of taboo, but, you know, hope we can keep talking about it. What did you think about the Summers incident? Um, well, actually, I blogged about it, and it got some interesting reaction. I, I'm i a little torn about it. I, I think that there was definitely some overreaction to what he said. I, I think I read over his speech, and I got the feeling that he was, he was bringing up these hypotheses for why he feels maybe women aren't, you know, getting as involved as they should be, mm-hmm. and he was sort of attacked for those those hypotheses when he wasn't saying that they were fact. He was just saying let's explore these these possibilities, right. Right. and I I think that's fair. I think you should always be able to say, well, let's look into this and study it and see, you know, what's going on there. Um, as opposed to saying, you can't say that that's sexist. I don't think it's ever sexist to say what if. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think for me the biggest issue was that, you know, and I'm an academic. I'm obviously a big fan of academia and its role in society. But I think, uh, in at least in this country, in, in the last couple of decades, uh, a legitimate criticism of academia is that they they actually are not upholding the highest principles of free speech and freedom of ideas. I mean, there are speech codes on campuses. They actually use censorship. And there is this extreme expression, I find, of political correctness on campuses. And even though it may be motivated by um, legitimate and good principles like sensitivity and egalitarianism, et cetera, and openness, et cetera. I think in the in the at the end of the day, it's censorship, and I think that this was that was a, a, a particularly egregious example of it. I agree. I think it was a, a, an incredible overreaction. If you don't like what he said, then make a counterargument. 
Exactly. Yeah, the the response should never be, how can we make him shut up? It should right. be, let's show him the evidence that he's wrong. Right. Exactly. And I think it's actually a very interesting debate, but one that doesn't get, I think, a, a fair and open discussion because uh, a lot of the, you know, any suggestion that maybe there are some inherent differences between men and women is just taboo within academic circles. And uh, I think, you know, one of the principles of skepticism is that no idea should be taboo. Exactly. I agree. Whatever it is, no matter how distasteful you think it is, you, you counteract it again with arguments, not with not with censorship. Um, it's similar to the David Irving incident recently, where he, you know, David Irving is the Holocaust denier that was put in prison um, for denying the Holocaust. Right. In Austria, was it? In Austria, that's right. Yeah. And it was somebody pointed out that it was very it was it was very um, accurate that you know right on the heels of Europe essentially lecturing the world about freedom of expression over the Danish you know anti-Muslim cartoons, they put a guy in, in prison for just expressing an, an idea about history, as wrong as it might have, as it is, it was uh, incredibly hypocritical of them to do that. Right, and those are the cases that really really test us. You know, if we need to defend the speech, even if it, if it, even if it offends us horribly, right? Um, we, you just have to. There's no question about it. You can't throw somebody in jail just for being an idiot. Right. Unfortunately, right. <laughs> right. We, don't right. Have, we don't have enough prisons. Right. <laughs> that would be true. <laughs> and plus, what would I do all day in prison? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, getting back to the to the women in, in skepticism issue, just a little bit. I mean, I think even though you know, women are increasing their presence in academia and in science. I don't know that I've seen that it's really penetrating the skeptical movement very much. I think, in fact, if anything, you and, and the skeptic organization are on the forefront of trying to break women into skepticism, because I haven't really seen much else evidence of it. I think there's something else other than science about skepticism, especially skeptical activism, that I think is just more appealing to men again, whether that's cultural or or inborn is you know probably not resolvable at this point. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's I, something I confrontational say, about it. There's something confrontational exactly. about skepticism. Yeah, you, you find I, you agree with that? I, I do definitely. I think that in general, I think it could be both uh, a product of the environment and heredity. heredity. Um, men are just naturally more prone to to be confrontational. Um, and we encourage that amongst men, but not always so much amongst women. Right. And so, a lot of times, you find women who just um, want to be nice. They don't. Right. They don't want to say, "Oh, well, that sounds like total bull." They want to, you know, get along with everyone. Um, and I think they need to know that it's okay to to say that, "Oh, that guy's not actually a psychic," or "You don't actually have a chakra." You know, it's right. okay to say things like that. What what led you to a, a skeptical outlook yourself? Um, well, I um, I usually like to say something like, "Oh, you know, psychics killed my parents" or something. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't really have a a spectacular story about it. I used to be a magician, and I ah. learned about. Um, so that is I excellent that. training ground for skeptics. Oh, yeah. yeah. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, although you'd be surprised at how easy it is sometimes to compartmentalize things. And, oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, you don't really always apply what you know to everything. <laughs> 
so eventually I learned to do that. Um, but I, I found Randy. Um, I knew about him as a magician, and then I found out about what he was doing. And um, I basically just fell into it that way. I got involved with his forum, um, his online forum, and that was really huge because that was just a way of connecting with other like-minded people that I didn't really realize that that community had existed before. Um, and so it was from that pool of people that I met the women that ended up uh, doing the calendar with me and organizing skeptics. So um, I'd say Randy was, was the big gateway drug, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to ask you, how did you think of the name Skeptic? <laughs> Actually, I didn't come up with that. I wish that I did. Um, that was a name that was tossed at me the very first time I posted on the James Randi board. They said, oh, good, another skeptic, finally. And I'm like, okay, what's that? <laughs> That's clever, but do I need to you know, pay some membership dues or something? <laughs> and the, the reason why I ask is because I... Th- I think I know who the original skeptic was. There really? was I, I asked you about this on email when we were talking about doing the show. Now, our um, for a few years, our Massachusetts chapter was run by uh, a woman by the name of Sheila Gibson, who who insisted on being referred to as the skeptic. Ah, right. You, that's right. I remember you did ask me, and I, I never responded to you. Um, I, I I don't think I've ever met Sheila, but really? I have her name bandied about, and I think I need to meet her. Yeah, she was a hoot. She really was. <laughs> she was. Yeah, she was a live. You'll remember her once you meet her. Yeah, she always used <laughs> yeah, to wear gloves everywhere she went. I, I keep hearing that she's she's a hoot and a holler. So <laughs> she was also a writer, wasn't she? She was also yeah. a writer. She, she did worked a bunch for of Rob Magazine, uh, the Rob Report. Is the That's magazine right. she worked for. At least when we knew her. It, Sheila, if you're listening, email me. We need to connect. Right. You Absolutely. better be listening. <laughs> 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 well, I was, I was looking through your blog, um, and uh, the one for yesterday caught my eye because you, you write about Snipply the Furry Lobster. <laughs> yes, I'm in love with Snipply the Furry Lobster. Oh, he's Don't awesome. One? <laughs> he's so cool looking. I love, I love his scientific name. Kiwa Hirsuta is perfect. Yeah. Absolutely perfect. Well, you know, it's a good name, but I kind of, I'm kind of I'm kind of partial to Snipply. Like well, yeah, I, I just I just love how they threw in you know her you know her suit in in his name, which means you know Harry. So it's just very right, apro- right. very apropos. What else are you gonna call it? Um, it actually caught right. my, it, it caught my eye because I, until I saw that, I was gonna use that in science or fiction this week. Um, <laughs> uh, uh. So again, I, no, the, the guys are all going to see that because we're, we're going to your website. <laughs> You're going to have a tough time for that because I love weird news. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> but what a weird, ad- what a weird, ad- what a weird adaptation that is. I mean, why, you know, why would you need need to grow hair? You know, seven, you know, whatever, four or five thousand feet underwater. Uh, you know, near near a vent. You know, that's I mean, that's where they live, right? Near these, yes. uh, these near the hy- near the hydrothermal hy- vents, right? Yeah, and, I mean, and that's silky, kind of a biz- silky blonde hair. Yeah, right. Less. Yeah, not even <laughs> dark, just in, an incredible uh, color. Well, unusual. what what kind of adaptation do you think that might be? Um, I can tell you what I read. That uh, <laughs> sure. the the hair, the fine hairy filaments. Oh, it captures uh, uh, it captures minerals and stuff. 
bacteria. To bacteria actually, becomes it's a home for bacteria, which helps them adapt to the hydrothermal vents. There's there they serve some adaptive function for them. So really. Yes, that, that's 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 the working hypothesis so far. Of course, this is a very recent find, so uh, it needs to be explored further. But that was the hypothesis that I read. You know, I have silky blonde hair, and now I'm a little worried about the bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I just love that the the whole hydrothermal vent ecosystem is so fascinating, and to think that we had you know not an inkling of it just probably what a, a couple of decades ago. That's right, it's about yeah, thirty, 30 years, years ago. This whole ecosystem that that's completely does not rely on photosynthesis. I mean, it doesn't need the sun to survive. And to me, that's important because it it points to the fact that you know there could be a lot more life on other planets out there, like Europa, where. You know, just because you're not exposed to the sun, you don't need the sun. It could be, you know, instead of photosynthetic life, it's chemosynthetic life. I mean, all you really need is, you know, water, minerals, and and some heat, and bam, you could you could have evolution uh, taken over. So it's it just to me, it expanded the range of uh, of life in in the solar in the universe, really. Well, yeah. Not to get too off topic, but did you see that the NASA just announced they found water on Enceladus? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. like a geyser. Yeah. Yes, um, I, I actually I think that that was a, a prior science or fiction where I, I asked about um, yeah volcanic activity volcanic activity and there's only at the time there were only three places in the solar system Earth Io and then the new one that w- that was the the subject of uh, of the which was which was Titan which, which right. was or Triton That's I'm right. sorry Triton, Triton. It was Triton which is the mo- a moon of Neptune and now this would be the fourth you know volcanic type activity. And the question is, is this um, ice, which is rapidly turning into a gas, or is there actually liquid, liquid water just under the surface that's coming, that's coming out? And if it's liquid water, that may expand by one the possible locations in the solar system that could be harboring life. Right. It's pretty cool. Maybe there's some snipplies down there. There may be. <laughs> Some hairy lobsters from Enceladus. Alien sniffles. <laughs> I'm surprised there's not more volcanism in the solar system, considering you know Titan. I mean, Jupiter and Saturn have so many moons, and the, the tidal forces must be so great that uh, I would you would think that there'd just be more you know volcanoes in the around you know orbiting those planets, just because of the you know the tidal forces and how they yeah, but I think, react. I think the reason for that, Bob, is that there's a narrow band. Of distance from the from that planet, too far away, and the forces are not great enough to cause to melt basically right. the crust of the of the moon and cause volcanic activity, and too close, and you would break up and, right. and become a ring. So you have to be right in that zone. In zone. So and for Jupiter, the only planet in that zone is Io. Uh, the other ones are, t- are too far away, and and uh, farther in, you have just a thin ring. Makes sense. Well, speaking of uh, science or fiction, why don't we go ahead and and do science or fiction for this week? Uh, Rebecca has graciously agreed to participate. It's time for science or fiction. So for those of you out there who don't know, uh, every week, um, or most weeks, we do a science or fiction. I come up with a few science news items or facts. Two are genuine, one is fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to figure out which one is, uh, which one is the fake. 
doing it slightly differently this week. The first difference is that I have four items instead of three, because these are these are brief items. So I thought four would be a little bit better. Uh-huh. Now, the, what I'm going to give you are myths, common myths. Three of these are actually myths. One of them is true. So that the, so the rules are reversed this week. I'm going to give you four items. Three are, are myths, are not true. And one, although it may sound like a myth, it's actually true. So you guys have to tell me which one of these four things is true. Okay. You get it? I'm totally Got confused. It. <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> um, Follow me, Perry. <laughs> let, let me read all four items first before anybody makes any comments. Then I'll, I'll ask around to see what you guys think. So item number one, the Great Wall of China is the only man-made structure visible from space. I've heard that. I, item number two, hold your comments <laughs> until, until I'm done with all four. Evan. Okay. Excuse me. Item number two, yawning is contagious. Dope. Item number three, <laughs> adults don't grow new brain cells. <laughs> Some don't, anyway. Item number four, a penny dropped from the, to- the top of a tall building could kill a pedestrian. Rebecca, since you are our guest this week, we'll start with you. Oh, man. Um, okay. Well, I'm pretty sure that number one is a myth, the Great Wall of China thing. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I read somewhere that that was debunked. And I'm also fairly certain that somebody tested number four and found that to be a myth. Okay. So so it's either adults they, don't y- Yawning is contagious, or um, adults don't grow new brain cells. You know, the yawning thing, I know I saw a psychological study on that when I was back in college, but I don't remember it being conclusive. But I'm going to say that that one's true, because cause it just seems true. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with that one. Okay, you're going with yawning is contagious is the yeah. true one of those four. And I'd okay. like to Pe- believe that I can grow new brain cells because I kill a <laughs> lot of them. So, <laughs> endless hope. Perry? I agree. I, I think it's yawning also. It's, a, it's what my gut tells me. I'm going to go with it. Going to go with your gut. And Rebecca. Okay. <laughs> Evan? Evan, where'd you go? Wow. Um... So yeah, I broke. I I came up with either yawning or uh, adults are the one of those two is true, um, and I could have sworn Steve that at some point we spoke about yawning. I don't. It had to be a couple years ago. I think we were talking about it, and I think if memory serves that there was they weren't sure. It was inconclusive as to if yawning was contagious. Uh, or not. So I would have to say that based on that, um, I'll say that that is actually a myth, and therefore the new brain cells, that's the one that's true. Adults do not grow new brain cells. Bob? Well, it's it's funny. It's a coincidence. I I read (laughs) something similar to this today. Um, Uh But, I mean, it it was pretty much – I pretty much knew knew most of it, um, except possibly the yawning thing. The Wall of China, uh, state that again, exactly what you said, Steve. The Great Wall of China is the only man-made structure visible from space. 
Well, it d- depends how you define space. First of all, I mean, where I where agree. does where does space begin? I mean, it's it's a you know. It's Bob a, it's always a, it's tortures a, these things. Yeah, <laughs> come on, <laughs> he, does, he tortures Perry. Them. It's, it's Perry, brutal. listen, Perry, listen and learn. All right, just listen. Oh. Okay, it depends yes, how you de- it depends how you define space, but ge- but generally, yeah, you can see the Wall of China, but you could also see six lane highways, the pyramids of Giza, and lots of other stuff that yeah, that are even, even bigger. 14 billion light years away, you can't see it. <laughs> if you have a if you have a powerful enough telescope, you can. So that that is not that is uh, you cannot. It's not the only thing. So that is so that is wrong. Okay. Um, yawning is contagious. I believe that at one point, but apparently, because I know three is true, so that's got to be so. Yawning's got to be a myth. So no new brain cells. Yeah, for for forever, people believe that scientists, neurologists believe that there were no new brain cells being created in, in adult brains. But recently. And uh, not very recently, like a couple years ago, they discovered that there were, which is which is pretty interesting. And the penny dropped one. That's that's uh, that's that's a myth as well. Uh, so so what I, are you saying? I'm saying that no, no new brain cells is. Um, that's well. How did you phrase it? Um, Adults don't grow new brain cells. That's false. That's okay. false. So which one's true? Um, it must be yawning. Must be yawning is contagious. Is true. Bob, you're so tortured, right. you don't even know what you're talking about anymore. You confused yourself. See? I he told you. Really Steve, you changed the format. <laughs> and, um, no, I he didn't. Format. No, he didn't. Well, then, <laughs> let's see. Then, this is uh, totally embarrassing. Let me think. Two uh, or four. Adults. I'm surrounded by adults. I'm going to go with yawning. We need more females okay. in there. Right. So everyone, everyone agrees that the Great Wall of China is the only man-made structure visible from space is an actual myth. And that is a myth, and, and Bob, you know, did partly hit upon one of the key elements is that space is ambiguous. Um, but if you consider that to be low Earth orbit, you know, the, the let's say the highest orbit from which you can't see the Great Wall of China, you can still see other structures. You can see, that Bob already mentioned, the pyramids of Giza. You could see airport, um, you know, airport runways. There's lots of structures that are equally as visible from low Earth orbit. So that is just a completely made-up myth. Well, Steve, you guys also... Yeah, Bob. I was just going to throw in just a little trivia for you guys. Um, actually, scientists or NASA, somebody actually defined where space you know, begins for practical reasons. And one of them, I forget the distances, you know, 50 miles, whatever, but one of them is you're above 99% of the atmosphere. That, that's, one, mm-hmm. that's one definition of where space begins. The other one is, is where um, uh, the, you know, the, the drag from the atmosphere, if you were in orbit, th- where the drag is completely insignificant, you know, that, mm-hmm. would, that, would, be, that would be another, another type of definition of, of where space begins. Right, and uh, well, the third one, which is about which is about a hundred miles or so up, yeah, basically, which is low Earth orbit. Um, you all also agreed that number four was a myth: a penny drop from the top of a tall building could kill a pedestrian. I've heard that so many times myself. I heard that, but it that would is go com- four inches into the cement or something. Like four that? Yeah, down into the cement. Mythbusters yeah. tackled it, I think. Um, yeah, that yeah. Because of aerodynamics, you know, a, a penny would reach its terminal velocity actually pretty slow. It would raise a welt on you, but it wouldn't even break the skin probably well still um, it would hit you at like you know terminal velocity like 120 miles an hour wouldn't it i mean it, well it, no that's not the terminal velocity for a penny though Bob. no because of, of it, because of its shape it doesn't it never reaches that speed okay no it, it would it would it would smart but it wouldn't hurt you um so we're down to number two and number three evan uh, i think you were the only one that broke from the other three you said that uh, you believe that adults don't grow new brain cells i'm an independent thinker you are you are. 
probably because you're still growing brain cells. <laughs> because that one, Bob is correct, that that was the conventional wisdom for a while. It's been more than a few years, though, that they, they have been documenting that brain cells do continue to... Um, to, to emerge, to divide, and to grow in the in the adult brain. Um, Doesn't mean really, that everybody actually uses them. That's well, that's true. Well, we, we only use 10% of them. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, right. 12% <laughs> uh, on a good day. 10, 12, whatever it takes. So uh, th- we do grow new brain cells. Unfortunately, um, as we get older, our brains do atrophy, so that the new brain cell growth does wane and does not keep up with the death of brain cells. It's still controversial whether or not the brain cells that are dying over time are ones that never became established and used in, in pathways or if it's actually a loss of functional neurons, whether it's a, a so-called winnowing away of the dead wood or an actual loss of function. Um, it's probably a little of both. Adults, we do, after the age of 40 or 50 or so, we do start to lose our cognitive edge, unfortunately. But that that one is a myth. Number two is, is in fact, correct. Yawning is contagious. This is a very – it's an interesting topic. There's a lot that we're not really sure about, but it's, it's it has been actually pretty well established that the, the, the probability of yawning goes way up if you are exposed to other people who are yawning. Um, but why? That whole – that holds true. That's the sixty-four thousand right. dollars question. There's a lot of speculation. They, they, it does hold true for other animals too: chimpanzees, the big cats, etc. Well, Steve, one um, one explanation I heard is that you know, for for early humans to synchronize sleep cycles, you know, they'd, so that everyone would pretty much go to sleep at the same time. That's kind of maybe one reason why it was selected for that. That, kind that, of that thing. that's one hypothesis. Though I don't think that that's that's the leading one at this time. One. Um, one myth about yawning that was uh, that was debunked with research was it, is was that the demon the demon goes in your mouth when you yawn and that's why you cover your mouth. <laughs> oh no no that's true. <laughs> uh, no that's oh, true wow. Bob. <laughs> uh, no that uh, that we yawn because um, our oxygen levels are dropping right a bit. right yeah. that actually has nothing to do with respiration yawning does not have to do with the movement of oxygen or CO two or or any or any function of respiration so that's that's not it. Um, Actually, the other the other myth about yawning is that it's an activity which is restricted to being sleepy. In fact, we yawn more when we're waking up than when we're than we're about to go to sleep. And the the leading hypothesis that I've read so far is that yawning is actually an activating activity. It actually makes us more awake and alert. Interesting. And maybe by stretching the tendons in the the, the temporal mandibular joint. Exercise. It's a, it's a form of exercise and stretching which may actually have an activating function. And the reason why it's contagious is because if one member of your troop or pride or whatever is yawning, they're getting ready to do some activity, then it's advantageous for you to be getting more alert and more ready to do activity as well. Still speculative, but that's, that's, the, that's where we are right now with that evidence. Are you suggesting that we evolved from some lower form of animal? I wouldn't say lower. <laughs> just, just, just different. Thank you. <laughs> the don't don't fall into the ladder of evolution myth, Perry. Are you of saying people not. that are you saying people that are yawning while listening to this podcast perhaps are uh, getting Exercising. themselves revved up revved <laughs> up for the next segment? That's absolutely right because we're we're just so damn exciting. Good, Phew. <laughs> Rebecca. Well, you guys did a good you guys did a very good job. Um, you hit it, Rebecca. Congratulations. Three out of four. Yeah, well done. congratulations. Well yeah, done. what, what do I win? 
well, you win well. my voice on your answering machine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> By the way, I love you on Morning Edition. Oh, thank Wait. you. Thank you. <laughs> you win uh, our parting gift, his and her motorbikes. Oh, I want to mention uh, Rebecca's adventures in online dating. Okay. <laughs> right. I, th- I thought it, it was very oh, inter- it was very interesting. Now, if I came if I was doing online dating and I and I came across this entry, I would I would literally think that somebody was putting me on and saying, "Wait, this is this too good to be true." I just love the, I just love these entries here. You have uh, last great book I read was Feynman. You also mentioned uh, Dawkins, and if you could take a class on any subject, quantum physics 101. I mean, that's just so cool. Let's see. Um, Perry more, needs to take that class. Yeah, right. More, Absolutely. See, more on who I'm looking uh, for section. Uh, Rebecca wrote someone who likes science, and I'm looking for someone who knows and understands that astrology is is bull. Whatever. Uh, no, really. It's funny. You go on. No, really. This is very important. I know it seems like common sense, but you'd be surprised. I also checked off that I was an agnostic looking for an agnostic or atheist. I mean, there can't be too many entries in these online dating services like this. I mean, there really and, and, aren't. I definitely Oh, my God. I'd be sending you an email if I was, if I was in, <laughs> on that service. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> you know, you can still send me an email. Okay. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, in my blog, I write about the, um, the funny, really terrible right. responses I get. But to be fair, I did get a lot of really great responses too oh, from very cool people. I've, I've been out on, on a lot of dates with scientists, and <laughs> um, I actually met. Some really cool people through that. So, and and a lot of my friends today are ex first dates off of there. So, <laughs> I really can't complain in general okay. about it. <laughs> so. It's an interesting phenomenon, the whole online dating thing. I, I have to tell you, Perry met his wife online. Right? <laughs> that would be accurate. <laughs> that ah, would be really? one of the early ones. Well, fairly early anyway. It actually worked out. It did. It worked, out. <laughs> worked out very well. Well, that, that, gives, that gives a lot of people hope. Uh, absolutely. I, I actually, I'm not, I'm not on there anymore, but it's mostly just because I, I don't have time anymore, <laughs> which is really kind of pathetic. <laughs> but I have no time for going out anymore. Really? Is the uh, organization keeping you that busy? Yeah, it's 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 all skeptics all the time now. <laughs> it's, it's okay because it's. I find the skeptics to be a lot more enjoyable than a lot of the dates, so <laughs> it's okay for now. <laughs> Doesn't speak very highly of scientists. <laughs> <laughs> the scientists have been great. It's you know, it's the spiritual, not religious people, and <laughs> you know, those those other types, but. I, I guess I should really go back on there, if only to get more stories to write about. Hmm. People seem to really enjoy those. You could write a sex and skepticism column, <laughs> like, like, like a takeoff of the Sex in the City column. That would be fun, actually. But I'm not sure I could really write a tell-all, though. I think people would get angry. So <laughs> We recently had a, a little controversy in the... Uh, Skeptics Guide about the G spot, Rebecca. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> I we did were... hear that, and you know, I was I was alarmed to find that you guys did not know that female ejaculation is a fact. It's a fact, you're saying. It's a fact. It, it is a confirmed well, fact. 
I don't think that was the argument, though. The argument was, is there a G-spot that triggers the ejaculation? No, it was just, there were two separate questions. Is there a G-spot, and is there female ejaculation? And we didn't really talk about the ejaculation part. Terry Hines mentioned it as an aside. Right. The discussion was focused more about the G-spot. But I confess my ignorance of, of the scientific evidence one way or another. So back to female ejaculation. Um, <laughs> it's always a favorite topic of mine. Yeah, I, I, will, uh, I will admit we're fairly... We're fairly ignorant it's on the documented. topic. See, and that's why it, you need more female. Here, here. Yeah. I agree well, a thousand yeah, yeah. percent. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm here to get you guys in line. There's too much testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're a believer in the G spot as well, just to be official about this, just to get this on the record. Um, actually, I I am pretty sure, like the the G spot thing, unconfirmed. You know, and and I have no evidence one way or the other, personally. So you're agnostic about the G-spot. But. <laughs> yeah, I am. Do we have an open invitation to call you whenever these topics arise in the future, Rebecca? Oh, yeah. No, not only do you have an open invitation, it's a demand. You have to call me. There you go. You, you are our official skeptic consultant. Yes. Whenever these issues arise in the future. Oh, man. Yes, I expect one day to be out at the bar with friends and to get a call of you guys on the podcast saying, okay, we have this question about orgasms. <laughs> Anything we'll say, remotely yes. regarding female genitalia, you're there, Rebecca. That's right. <laughs> there you go. All right, good. good. It's good to know. Rebecca, what other what topics? Is... What other topics could we call you on? What What are your your areas of interest besides uh, cereal? Apparently, from your from your blog. If we have well, any yeah, cereal an questions, ex- we will definitely. I'm an give expert you a call. on cereal. Um, I'm a cereal fanatic. Um, <laughs> a juggling magic. Um, Female ejaculation. Um, <laughs> all <laughs> those related theme. topics. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's all pretty much in the in the in that category. Right. <laughs> How many items can you juggle at once? Four. That's impressive. Wow, that's, that's pretty good. good. That's pretty good. Um, yeah, ju- any, anybody you know who can juggle five, they're either a professional juggler or insane because. Mm-hmm. You ever seen Penn Gillette juggle those broken bottles? Oh, he juggles I everything. I, I absolutely astounding. Astounding. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great part uh, of Zach. I love that. Did, did you guys read? Did you guys read Discover? I think it was Discover magazine a couple of years ago. Some a juggler wrote in a very interesting article about juggling and the mathematics of juggling, and and he came up with some some very unusual. God, how do I describe it? These weird algorithms that he could apply to juggling. That it was it was a fascinating article. I, I'm, unfortunately, I can't remember a lot of it, but uh, it was very. It was all about the timing of when you throw up different right, and what different uh, right. objects. And he, my God, he was insane. I, I think what was he juggling, Steve? Like six or seven or eight? I mean, it's just some crazy number of things that he could juggle. That's outrageous. He, yeah, he was pretty more talented. uses for math. Juggling right. lots of weird there you stuff. Go. <laughs> well, Rebecca, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the Skeptics Guide. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Where the time always seems to run out very quickly. Uh, I hope that you will join us again, and we'll absolutely keep you on our hotline for, for women and skepticism issues. Great, yeah, keep me on the speed dial. What's in the future for the for the Skeptic Org? Just plugging away at the calendar and your blog, or you have any, anything new on the horizon? Um, yeah, the calendars are coming together quickly, and um, we're just pumping out new issues of uh, the online magazine, and it's getting bigger and better every month. So definitely check in on March 15th is our next one. Glad to hear. And again, that's at skepchick.org. The links, again, will be on our our notes page for this podcast. 
again, Rebecca, thanks for being on the Skeptic's Guide. Thanks for Thank having you. me. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks, Rebecca. Bye-bye. Good night. So what did you guys think about Rebecca Watson, the skeptic? It's terrific. Wow. Uh, she was she great. She was awesome. Excellent. It was really great having her on. we got to have her back. Definitely. Got to have her back Definitely. real soon. And we'd also like to hear from uh, other women out there who listen to this podcast and get their thoughts on, uh, on a lot of these things. It's great to have uh, uh, more females involved. Yeah, in send this. us your emails. Send us your, your voicemails, your, vo- your voice recordings, so we can play you on our podcast. Definitely need to get more women involved in, in skepticism. I'd also like to say that we saw Rebecca's uh, calendar pictures, I guess, and she's a hot. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Another one. <laughs> Absolutely. She is. Yeah. Uh, she was she, good. She was great. And she picked a good month, October, the best month. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So that is all the time that we have for this week. Uh, guys, thanks again. Always a pleasure. Bob, Perry, Evan. Righto. Excellent, good episode, guys. No problem. For our listeners out there, uh, we'll see you again next week. Until then, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is a production of the New England Skeptical Society. For information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theness.com. You can send us questions, comments, and suggestions to podcast at theness.com. Theorem is performed by Kenetto and is used with permission.